0: I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to a very special episode of the Empire and Pilot TV podcasts in association with Disney+. Plus. This is an episode dedicated to the intriguing limited series *Dopesick*, which launches on Star on Disney+, Plus on November 12th. It's an eight-part drama about the opioid crisis that's ravaged the United States over the last decade or so, taking in numerous viewpoints from doctors who prescribed the drug... To law enforcement officials who fought Big Pharma, who were distributing the drug, it stars Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, Caitlin Deaver, Will Poulter, Peter Sarsgaard—an amazing, amazing cast in this show, which is created by Danny Strong. And you know, as before, we did this for The Walking Dead, and we've done we've done it a couple of times, haven't we, Jim? But we, we we've have. we've crossed the streams, we have crossing the streams. It takes something truly momentous for us to cross the streams on the Empire and Pilot TV podcast. Uh, and so I'm delighted to be talking about Dopesick for the next 45 minutes or so with two pilot colleagues of such lethal cunning. James Dyer, of course. Hello, Chris. Hello, James. I see you brought your A game
1: in terms <laughs> of banter. Yeah.
0: Good stuff.
2: How, 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 how are you? I, I'm fine. On a level of 1 to 10, I rate
0: my pain at about a 4. Yeah. I rate my pain. Anytime I'm in a room with you,
3: like, <laughs> it's
0: not a smiley face, that's for sure. Uh, we're also joined, of course, by Beth Webb. Hello.
3: Perpetual smiley face. Perpetual Beth smiley
0: Webb. face. See? See? That's what you want, Jimbo. Yeah. Mm. Oh, honestly. I don't know. You're a ridiculous man. Uh, anyway, Beth, uh, we are going to have an interview now. Yes. Before we get into the show and Dope Sick and talk about everything around Dope Sick uh, as well. Um, because a couple of weeks ago, this this actually premiered. At the London Film Festival. Yes. Just to show what a big noise it is. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so Danny Strong, the show's creator, who wrote every episode, I believe, all yes. eight episodes. Uh, he was in town along with Will Poulter and Caitlin Deaver, who uh, we'll get into who they play in the show. Maybe we should talk about it now, because so, you know, I'm sure that's what you're, you're going to get it in, in, in the interview. Yes. So Will Poulter is a salesman. Recruited by Purdue Pharma, the creators of OxyContin, Mm. the opioid at the centre of this show. Uh, So he is pushing it relentlessly, specifically to Michael Keaton's doctor. Yes. uh, Who then obviously then pushes it to his patients as well. And Caitlin Deaver is one of those patients. In fact, she's almost patient zero for Mm. the opioid crisis. Um, So they came into London, all three of them together. You went into a room. How was it?
3: It was strange to see them slightly all playing against the grain i mean will potter is i mean he 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 does take the time to play interesting, complex, robust characters. But here he really is at the crux of a moral dilemma and plays someone really quite shady. And then we've got Caitlin Devo as well, who I know best from Booksmart, a wonderful mm-hmm. uh, breakout performance. But here, again, has a really robust, layered character to play. Betsy Malam, who is a minor, a female minor in this mining community, who is also coming to terms with well she's come to terms with her sexuality but coming to terms with the fact that she's going to have to come out in a town which is very religious uh, and not too compassionate when it comes to gay people so we have these two very interesting characters and they do such an incredible job of playing them and both went into the research and things behind it and then Danny Strong who I mean I was thrilled because I'm a big Gilmore Girls fan Uh, (laughs) Danny I think he's had such a wonderful career arc because he's gone from I mean we'll have all seen him in for me Gilmore Girls but he was in Buffy obviously and Mad Men he had this wonderful part in but then at the same time has branched out into this really rewarding Career in screenwriting. He wrote The Butler, of course. Uh, he was Emmy nominated for some other TV work that he's done, and then he's come in and yeah, written this very considered, very detailed, very studied account of of the opioid crisis. And it was a real the the passion for this really came through. I think it takes real commitment to play these characters in a story that still is very relevant. I think it was at the yeah. time this is recording. There's there's a court case that's just gone in favor of advertisement for pharmaceuticals. Um, so yeah, it's taken a real commitment, a real passion project. Uh, and it was a real thrill to speak with them.
0: Absolutely. And here is our interview right now. And then you will have us three idiots talking about Dope Sick. <laughs> Enjoy.
3: Thank you so much. Hi, guys.
4: Hi.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Um, and congratulations on the show. My goodness. Um, lots to think about with that. Now, Danny, you were approached to write this story about the opioid crisis initially as a movie and you decided to go down the limited series route.
4: Well, when I started researching the subject matter, I it was like a rabbit hole that I fell down, this rabbit hole of Purdue Pharma's crimes. And I was so stunned by the lies, the manipulation, the deviousness of their criminal behavior in marketing a highly addictive narcotic as non-addictive uh, that I just felt like people need to see this. They, they need to see what these criminals did. And there was so much of it. The criminal behavior was so staggering that there wasn't enough for just a two hour movie. I felt like we needed to do this over a longer period of time. And, and then I thought, well, we need to do more than just Purdue pharma. We need to show their victims and we need to show uh the, the, these prosecutors that went after them and a dea agent and so when it started to come together structurally for me as well i thought i think this could be a lot more powerful told over 8 hours as opposed to just two
3: absolutely and and a large part of that is the human stories that are ingrained in this in this broader sort of scandal, uh, Caitlin with Betsy, she's got such a layered character. she's obviously a minor of this small town and a queer woman as part of a deeply religious family as well. What was your in for this character
1: i I felt just so deeply connected to her immediately and felt like I had to play her. It felt like such a big responsibility to take on this kind of this kind of role, and I was so grateful to Danny for for putting his trust in me to take on the role of Betsy because she's so nuanced and compelling and I think her story is is <clears throat> really heartbreaking and 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 tragic but also a story of of courage and and strength um I love that her her story involves queer representation I love that she is a is a female coal miner and that's not something that we get to see a lot of and then also she does represent a large group of people. She does represent the, um, you know, the victims of this of this crisis. And uh, I felt a huge responsibility to take her on. Um, and, you know, this, this story felt, you know, and is so much bigger than me. So I just, I really just poured myself and everything that I had into it.
3: Will, with yourself, your character, Billy, he operates in a really from what we've seen so far, a really murky, moral kind of gray space when it comes to his corporate work. And you can kind of see that he is he's conflicted, I guess. What was your approach to playing someone, again, as, as incredibly complex as, as this character?
5: Yeah, Um my character, Billy is a, a composite character of, you know, several different people who were employed by Purdue in the kind of farmer rep role. And so um, he represents a lot of the kind of young salespeople who would have been out kind of promoting this drug. And I think um, in, in Billy's case, you know, I think initially um, that he was encouraging doctors to prescribe something that was going to be uh, good for people. Um, But what quickly becomes apparent to Billy, and I think this was probably uh, most likely the case for a lot of Purdue representatives, is that, as Danny mentioned, this was, uh, from inception, an entirely fraudulent campaign um, driven by financial incentives and greed. um, And there was no benevolency at play whatsoever. Uh, Hardworking people from mining communities like... Like Caitlin's character were taken advantage of. These were people who, you know, um, were trusting in companies like Purdue and believing what they were being told. Um, and ultimately, Purdue and uh, their sales force have to, uh, you know, um, uh, w- were responsible for for peddling the lies and, and uh, introducing this drug to market.
3: Yeah. So obviously, a great deal of research went into this project. And then you had to go that extra measure and, and kind of research the people that you were representing, as you said, the, the communities or groups of people within the story. So Caitlin, if I could start with you, could I ask how you approached researching a story as as complex and sprawling as this one, and then brought that into Betsy's character as well.
1: You know it, I had already kind of, I think gotten a little bit of a head start um, with research and addiction for another project I had done uh, a few years prior. But then I, I really, I hadn't done a lot of research on Oxy specifically. And I think in researching online, there's not a whole lot of, info, or I guess, information on how it really affects someone emotionally and how, how it changes literally someone's brain chemistry. And I ended up meeting someone on set with us um, who was completely helpful in my journey in creating Betsy. And he was so immediately open and kind with his own experience, uh, because he shared a lot of similarities with Betsy. And he was a a very important element in my um, development for her. I mean, the book is obviously like super informative, the book um, by Beth Macy. And then also the the scripts are just so... um, I I studied the scripts like the back of my hand uh, but uh, when you're researching online, there's not a whole lot of there's a lot of just clinical facts on um, how, how, you know, the, like the side effects of of the drug. But I think that uh, emotionally, the person that was with me on set and um, helping guide me played a big part in my preparation and and also a lot of documentaries that I was watching. It's the first time I actually created a spreadsheet for a character, too, because there was so much I felt that I that i wanted to be very very specific about um so i had never done that for for a role before but because we were sort of shooting out of order i th- i felt like there was uh, so many levels that i had to get absolutely right um and so yes i created a, a spreadsheet that my sister helped me with google docs cuz i don't know how to work google docs for the life as of a me as i nerd, i respect yeah that. I yeah write, I respect yeah, yeah, that. yeah i don't know how to work the, the google doc i don't know how to do it so. i don't um, yeah you,
5: not even a proper note
3: just it, it was
1: very organized <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then the same with you well what was your how did you sort of research for the part and also i wanted to know what your emotional response was to when you were coming on this project when you were seeing the depths of what people like that were operating on behalf of purdy were doing
5: like how did hmm. you
3: respond to that
5: I think although our characters are very, very different, like, um, like Caitlin, you know, for me, the book by Beth Macy under the same name and Danny's scripts was so rich um, in their, in their research, you know, and um, so, so detailed that really, you know, you had two incredible touchstones right there. Um, and also any additional information I needed, like Danny as our Like writer, showrunner, producer, director—like he was there every day as well. So he was someone who I could go to, and you were kind enough to allow me to kind of like pick your brains whenever I sort of needed additional info. The most disturbing thing I think to discover is, you know, when we when we talk about epidemics and we see things, you know, about um, Oxy in the news, at least from my perspective, you know, you can often um, have the statistics, the numbers, and the headlines kind of be the sort of Overwhelming, you know, features of the of the story, and what you don't necessarily see in the news or you haven't seen enough is actually kind of how methodical and kind of personally driven this was by a singular company um, that was micromanaged by a singular family. And so, what this story is really kind of lifts the veil on the efforts that the Sacklers and Purdue went to um, in order to introduce this drug to market and. You know, continue to sell it, even in the knowledge that it was claiming so many lives. That was the most disturbing thing I think to come into contact with, and just just the sheer numbers as well. You know, um, in 2020, when we shot this, over 90,000 people died through overdose by opioids, and they were under the age of 35. And so, obviously, we were all kind of naturally consumed on a global level by the challenges of the pandemic, but. Right there in America, while we were shooting, there was an epidemic that was claiming the lives of very, very young people at a frightening rate.
3: Yeah, it's um, disturbing. It's definitely, definitely the word. And the fact that it boils down to this, this one family as well. Danny, when you were writing this, when you were putting this into development, what kind of challenges did you come up against, if, if at all?
4: Everything. I mean, it was just, just a, such a challenging piece to put together. It was a very complicated piece. You had all these intertwining storylines, and in order to make it even harder on myself, I decided to do them in three different time periods, uh, which was by the only the only way to do it. To be honest with you, um, because if you had done it in a linear story, then the prosecutors wouldn't have showed up till episode seven, right? So, um, so it was the only way to do this version. That I wanted to do, but it just was—it uh, just was—it was very difficult to construct. Uh, the research never ended, although that was kind of exciting as well, uh, because there was uh, essentially an ongoing investigation of new facts coming out, new people agreeing to interview, people as don't wanting to interview but would leak me documents. So it, it was this thing that never ended, and even as we were shooting. I would get new information or some some new email from someone uh, that that was leaked to me and I would turn it into a scene sometimes the next day or rewrite dialogue for the next day and infuse this new information into the show. So there was it was pretty exciting, to be honest with you, that investigative element of it. And and uh, ultimately um, the case that we dramatize in the show Um, uh, settled in 2007 with guilty pleas. But there's a huge part of that case, which is why weren't these uh, executives charged with felonies? Why were they able to plead the misdemeanors? And it's been sort of um, a bit of a mystery um, for years. And I was able to mostly crack it, uh, what really happened uh, and, and was able to report out Within inside the Justice Department, it was amazing the number of people that were willing to to speak to me that didn't want to talk about it for years and years and years. So so uh, that was, you know, extremely rewarding. I remember when I finally felt like I cracked it and I called Beth Macy kind of giddy, you know, I'm like, Beth, I think we got it. I think we got it. And then I told her and she was giddy, too, because it was this just this kind of mystery of the opioid crisis is why. Why did they? Um, why did they? Were they allowed to plead the misdemeanors and not charged with felonies?
1: Mm. Mm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you've been you've been so writing for a while now as well, but you've also appeared in some absolutely incredible on screen ensemble casts and have this extensive acting career as well. I'm sure it. Crosses over your your acting craft into your writing, but what is the most important thing that you try and bring from your acting career into your show writing?
4: Well, I think that my my acting background is my secret weapon as a writer. Um, is that I've spent so many years working on scenes and working on material. Uh, so when I write, um, I'm playing the parts myself hmm. uh, as I'm writing them. Uh, which, you know, may be a little deranged, but whatever, it works for me. So so uh, I, I think it's actually my biggest asset as a writer is my background as, as an actor.
1: Hmm. It was so cool to get to collaborate with you because the fact that you do you you really do understand what it's like to be an actor and it's just a really amazing collaborative experience no, working you. with you.
4: Thank you. Well, yes. it's easy when you've got actors like these two here that are just not just incredible actors, but uh, also two of the nicest people you'll ever meet.
3: And speaking of amazing actors, obviously, I mean, Caitlin, you've spent screen time with Michael Keaton and Danny, you've worked with him as well. Could I ask what your relationship was like with Michael's work before you started this project, the three of you? Like, did you have a favourite film of his or a favourite character that he played?
5: i never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, been,
3: I'm he's familiar. Idea, but yeah. He's great in
4: this. Yeah, he's great. great. I thought he was and good it, too. I thought he
1: did a nice job.
4: He was decent. <laughs> it was neat because they were able to hold his hand through the filmmaking process. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot. Yeah, he, was was like, he, was he was nervous. He was nervous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> a challenging okay.
5: I was freaking out, but she, I was
1: freaking out. Yeah, I had he's, to hold it down. I feel like he's on every actor's bucket list. Yes. I think he's one. Of, he's just that much of a legend. Hmm. Um, I obviously love, uh, like Beetlejuice, uh, Batman, oh but just not name, name a few, <laughs> yeah. but then the number one was, uh, Jack Frost.
4: Oh my gosh. <laughs> you, you told me this. You don't normally hear I, Jack Frost. I remember Frost telling you this. The, uh...
1: Jack Frost, man. Mm. <laughs>
5: For me, Batman and Birdman, like simultaneously was just the most amazing, I, like, right, two-hander Birdman, to like,
1: Frost, yeah.
5: not that that totally like bookends his career at all, but like just two incredible films. <laughs> And then what was really, and I like, would never, ever want Michael to know this. So I pray he knows these things. But like, there was a big part of me that was like his his cameo in The Other Guys, where he plays the, <laughs> yes! the yes! Ch- like chief of police.
1: you talked about that. We, you, we talked the We talked about Bath this. And Beyond I, t- I told you about mm-hmm. Jack Frost. You said The Other Guys. I couldn't <laughs> deal with that. I had
5: to erase that from my memory anytime I was in a scene with him, because that would maybe make me giggle, which would have been <laughs> very inappropriate <laughs> given the material we were doing. So, yeah. But he's he's incredible. And also, like, I, I don't know, like when you admire someone's work so much, you just kind of hope that they're also like a nice person, you know, because it can be like, you know, they say, like, don't meet your heroes kind of thing. He's so wonderful as a person. And the fact that he found space, you know, to extend himself in the, the, the kind ways that he did when he was consumed by this incredibly challenging role was so impressive to me. Like, yeah. just wonderful.
3: Oh superb. Danny, what did that collaboration with him look like to you? Because it's such I mean, they're all incredibly important characters to this story, but but yeah, how did you collaborate with Michael to play essentially this this good-hearted doctor who's in the wrong place at the wrong time?
4: yeah, well, it's 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 funny because he read the pilot script, and then he asked to be to have a written document of what the rest of the arc was. So I wrote a five page document of what the arc was. Now, little did I know that he never read the document. So he came; he agreed to it based on the first script. And where the arc goes is really, really intense, uh, and not what you would expect. And I remember he called me uh, after he finally got to the episode where things start to change, and he, he said, "This is this is you know this is really challenging." And I said, yeah, I sent you a document of exactly what's going to happen. He's like, well, I didn't read it. (laughs) Um, So there was a whole journey he didn't know about. Um, But it was, he also had this really unique challenge in that we block shot his entire arc. Mm -hmm. So we spent six weeks just shooting all of Michael Keaton's scenes. So he would have to shoot a scene from episode seven and then one from episode three, sometimes in the same day, sometimes with multiple directors. So, and I was sort of, Because we had all these different directors, me included as one of them. And so I was sort of there as the continuity guy, particularly for Michael, though, because, yeah, I was like, I'll do continuity, I'll do props and I'll show run, you know. And it was the it it was sort of uh, this thing that where Michael and I worked really closely just on. okay, we're in episode four now. Uh, scene three, and then the next scenes, episode seven, and we would talk about exactly what exactly what was going on. Uh, in these wildly divergent moments, and it's a testament to his his incredible performance how you would never know that the the arc is flawless uh, through the course mm. of the season with mm. what he does, and it's it's particularly impressive if you know that he was sometimes shooting three different episodes in one day. Uh, and the characters so completely different in all of them.
5: I knew that and have watched the show and didn't even think about that because it's so flawless. Yeah. And I knew that he was block again. Yeah.
4: Insane. Yeah, wild. And Johnny Dangerously. That's my favorite Keaton movie, but whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Fantastic. A well, wonderful note to uh, end on. Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with us, guys. And I'm really, really excited to see the rest of this uh, this series. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Alright, so that was Danny Strong and Will Poulter and Caitlin Deaver as well. How were they, Beth?
3: Yeah, wonderful, very compassionate and fun. I really love the, (laughs) we got to kind of essentially collectively fangirl Michael Keaton, um, (laughs) who everyone had a different favourite role of his, which was really great. I love the the joke that they kind of guided him, took him by the hand, Will Porter and Caitlin Dever, and guided him through the show. Really heroic of them, really great job, guys. These newcomers
0: need some help, don't they? (laughs) Exactly.
3: So God God love them, doing the Lord's work.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the way into this, because Danny Strong, as you heard there in the interview, was approached to do a movie about the opioid crisis, which has been swampy in the United States, particularly in, in areas like Kentucky over the last 10, 15 years, well, going back to 1996, uh, as, as seen in the show. What I thought was interesting about this is then Strong decided that this was a such a huge topic. That he wanted to turn it into a limited series, so he could come at it from different angles. Mm. So, the easy thing for people to do in a crisis such as this, uh, a crisis that is built around the idea of addiction, is to blame the addicts, because crime rose dramatically in the states in these rural areas where people were being prescribed OxyContin. And what Danny Strong didn't want to do here is filify the addicts. He wanted to filify. The, the guys in their gilded cages and their fast houses who came up with it in the first place. But he also wanted to tell different stories from different points of view. So Michael Keaton in Dope Sick is essentially one of the first doctors to prescribe OxyContin to his patients. Will Poulter is, as we said, one of the salesmen who's pushing it. Michael Stuhlbarg, didn't even mention Michael Stuhlbarg. My, my God, the, the, the bench in this thing is very, very deep. Michael Stuhlbarg is the Scientist and part of the Sackler family who are behind Purdue Pharma, who essentially invents OxyContin. Rosario Dawson is a cop who investigated. Peter Sarsgaard is an attorney general who investigates this and slowly but surely puts together a lawsuit. So he wanted to tell different stories. And to my mind, that that recalled traffic, for example, which took a similar approach to another drugs crisis mm. back in the in the early uh, noughties. The Channel Four TV series, of course, and then the Steven Soderbergh film that won an Oscar. That's a really interesting approach, don't you think? The idea that he he didn't want he wanted to humanise the fa- he wanted to humanise people who were addicted to oxycontin, like Caitlin Dever's character Betsy.
3: Yeah, of course, and I think that is such um, a great, impactful way, certainly, to introduce us to the very ruinous effects of this drug and the relationship between Caitlin Deva's character and Michael Keaton's. Michael Keaton's character, Dr. Phoenix, he is he is at the heart of this mining community. He knows them very well because unfortunately what comes with their professions, what comes with going online, is, is a considerable amount of pain that comes with the job. There are small in- injuries. We obviously see injuries with Caitlin Deva's character in the first episode, which is why she goes on to the drug. But because he's so intrinsically immersed in the fabric of this community, he just wants what's best for them. He deals with them a lot. You know, when um, Betsy speaks to him about her sexuality... He already knows. And he says, you know, I gave, I, I birthed you. I can, as in not literally, obviously, but he helped to bring her into the world. Mm-hmm. They've had this long-standing relationship. So that is is a really impactful way to introduce us to the, the drug and the harmful effects that it can have on somebody who has worked incredibly hard to get to where she is, then has the added trauma of, of coming out to her parents. So she has worked incredibly hard to get into the mines as a female miner. And then at the same time, she is wrestling with the relationship with her parents and having to hide her true self, so it really does go to lengths to ensure that she as as the the patient zero, as you say, isn't seen as anything other than a casualty in this massive industry and and big sort of stormful commercialization of drugs in the pain industry, which is something I knew very little about until. This uh, this show and is both fascinating and and horrifying all in one. It really is.
0: Mm.
2: It is kind of terrifying, isn't it? Again, coming at this from a British perspective, yeah, where yeah. all of our sort of encounters with the healthcare are filtered through the NHS, this big socialist institution. To see how much capitalism essentially funds the American medical industry. It's a very complicated issue. I certainly think for this show to travel overseas, you needed a broader perspective on this. And I like the fact that you've got the Sackler family, you've got their perspective, such as it is. Uh, (laughs) You know, you have it from the addict's perspective, you have it from the drug rep, which I thought that was a particularly interesting thread or form this character. to just that these are people who are not responsible for creating it, but they're the ones who are essentially pushing this drug, which is what they're doing. They're pushing this stuff and then the realisation from their point of view, it's like, and you have the different reps you see and there's what you do when you have a rep with a conscience versus reps without a
0: conscience and how they... They operate. And how conscience can be eroded by the great riches on offer. Indeed. As well.
2: And the way they, you know, the bribery at stake, oh yeah, we'll go to the the doctors and they offer them, you know, trips here, trips there, paid for this, speaking gigs, which is basically a bribe. Mm -hmm. uh, And you must now prescribe our drug. And I found it really interesting when the people who are investigating and who are prescribing this drug, when they're faced with situation where they might have it prescribed to them, how their perspective then changes on what this drug is. It's genuinely terrifying, like genuinely terrifying. And it is a, a massive health issue
0: in the US, a massive health issue. The show hitting right now is really, really timely because I read yesterday, and, I, and this is probably a very, very out of date figure, but there was something like 400,000 deaths alone because of the opioid crisis. 400,000 people in the states alone, it's it's quite frightening. But this this is so timely. This isn't something mm. that this isn't a historical TV show. This isn't a historical fight. It is here right now. It is still happening. people are addicted to this drug and in, in in mass quantities in the states. Um, and so it appearing on our screens right now is very very timely. And in terms of as well, what you said there, Jimbo, about the delivery mechanism, if you wish, mm-hmm. for this show is an all star cast, and that helps. That really helps, I think, people get their hooks into what, as a British audience, is something I wasn't particularly familiar with. There's a Jack Reacher book that we both read, indeed, um, <laughs> where he uh, encounters people who are addicted to opioids and the opioid crisis, and he intervenes, and in his Jack Reacher way, he almost single-handedly stamps it all out. If yes, he punches uh, the drug in the he face. He punches <laughs> it right in the face. Uh, and so there's the, and there, there, there's, there are other TV shows and other films that have that have tackled this or begun to tackle this and begun to try and address this. But um, over here, my knowledge of OxyContin, I knew the name OxyContin, Mm. but I didn't know an awful lot. And then something comes along like this, which is um, a very, very uh, serious-minded, level-headed depiction of what happened and how it happened. Yeah. But you have your big name stars to to get your hooks into and to help take you by the hand and guide you through it, like Michael Keaton and like Rosario Dawson.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... A big issue I get into on the pilot podcast quite a lot is when you have these big sprawling TV shows, I, I usually irk, not just because we have to watch them all in such a quick succession, <laughs> but because sometimes they say in eight, 12 hours runtime what they could say in a two hour film. Whereas with this show, I'm so pleased that actually Danny Strong went the other way and said, This story deserves more. This story deserves a big eight hour runtime mm-hmm. so that these stars can come in, they can embody all different pockets of this mm. crisis can really show it and, and bring it across to audiences that know very It's a very different story this. though,
2: isn't it, if it's a film? If it's a, if it's a film, ultimately it's going to become a courtroom drama it's going to become like you know the Attorney General versus Purdue Pharma that's when you're going to lose those other elements of it and I think that's an interesting dramatic way of telling this story but I don't think it does justice to kind of the importance of the issue which because it is very nuanced and there's a lot going on I've not read the book that the the series is is based on but I think it goes into all of this that this has become the tendrils of the opioid crisis have reached every section of American society I think so you do need to look at it from the addict's point of view from the family's point of view from the legal Point of view, you have to look at all these different aspects of it. I think to really get an understanding of what this is and what it has cost America in terms of American society, but also in terms of money as well. Like it's mm. been absolutely crippling
0: to that country.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I think if you were to make a movie of this, probably I would. You know, <laughs> and people should come to me for credit decisions. By the way, uh, <laughs> but you know, you can the natural way in is the Peter Sarsgaard character, Rick Mountcastle, who is the crusading lawyer. Played by Peter Sarsgaard, which is interesting because yeah. Peter Sarsgaard is, I would say, <laughs> mainly these days known for playing quite shifty, duplicitous villainous types.
3: You'll put that lightly as well. He, well, <laughs> yeah, but
0: it, watching him in this role, yeah. where he is a family man, virtuous family man, heart of gold, and he is appalled by what is happening with. Oxycontin and he, he begins to start pulling at the threads um, and slowly but surely along with his uh, his sidekick Randy Ramsayer what an incredible name yeah. uh, played by John Hugenacker uh, again an incredible <laughs> I name I mean say. he's just like one upping the name you think Randy Ramsayer is a good name try John Hugenacker <laughs> <laughs> Peter Sarsgaard's like, I've got a great name. I've got loads of A's, but yep. you've, 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 out, you've outgunned me. You've out-owed me and you've k me. You've KO'd me. Um, but what was he talking about? Yes, Peter Sarsgaard. So he's, yeah. like, he's usually a bad guy these days, but watching him in this role, where he is the crusading uh, lawyer, out to uncover the truth and punish the bad guy it reminded me of his role in Shattered Glass. Do you remember that film? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, oh, he's indeed. so good with film. Anakin Skywalker. With Anakin Skywalker, where he took down he took down in one movie what Yo McGregor took three movies to do, <laughs> which was just take down Anakin Skywalker. That's right, and even then he didn't really do that. Ewan McGregor, that is not Peter Sarsgaard. Sure. Peter Sarsgaard took down Anakin Skywalker. Peter, Sgar- Peter Sarsgaard, like Obi Wan Kenobi, had the higher ground. He had the. It's over. It's over, Stephen Glass. I have the higher ground. Is an actual line from Shattered Glass. Oh, Don't wow. look at that. Just take my word. <laughs> just take my word for that. But yeah, Sars- That's your natural way into it, right? Sarsgaard as the the you know these Lee's lawyers who are slowly but surely uncovering the truth, pulling on the threads. Then they bring in Rosario Dawson, who's a DEA agent who again is beginning to investigate from her point of view, and you can just. Cut out all the Caitlyn Deaver stuff, all the Will Poulter stuff, all the Michael Keaton stuff, but you don't do that here. It's, yeah. it's an interesting way to approach it.
3: Yeah. And I like that the. So Rosaria Dawson's character, Bridget, she's on the ground seeing it from the perspective of how it's harming kids, which is just another horrible. <laughs> but, but again, it is, it is, it's all building up such a broad, mixed picture in this. And there are obvious villains, but then there are also some who aren't as obvious. And, and as I say, it's just a real feat in Danny Strong's writing to to go to such lengths to make sure everybody is so well rounded in this.
0: Okay, so you talked obviously to Will Poulter and Caitlin Devers. So let's talk about let's talk about them and talk about their um, their characters' POVs in this crisis. So Will Poulter is fascinating in this because yes. he is the he is a guy who you you sense there's a conscience there. You sense that there's a decent guy in there. But he's unravelled by, as I said earlier on, the the rewards on offer.
3: Yeah, I mean, he is fascinating. It's it's such a great tracing role for Will Poulter as well, who I think we just come to associate again with. Maybe just he just comes across as incredibly wholesome and and this 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 feels very like a very conscious choice for him i know he tries to go for roles that encourage social activism and this very much plays into that he plays off against a another sales agent called amber who is just she's in she's played by philippa sue she's she's pretty inherently evil in this but in some ways i would argue that will polter's character is more disturbing in that he comes across as this nice guy, you know, wet behind the ears, clean shaven, and he strikes up. So he's assigned to Michael Keaton's Dr. Phoenix uh, to go in and, and use all the tactics, you know, find out that he likes fried chicken uses Ooh, I like his fried I love fried chicken. Oh no. We'll be
0: <laughs> I i be such an easy mark.
3: Such an easy <laughs> target. Genuinely. Just get me a three piece and some spicy rice. He strikes up this this relationship almost like a father son relationship with Michael Keaton's Dr. Phoenix and and uses his vulnerabilities against him almost without him even knowing. So he yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really difficult Pretty unforgivable character at this stage. Where his trajectory goes, I'm not sure. I hope he goes into mm. more sor- morally sound ground. But yeah, he he really is pretty hard to forgive at this stage. Well, it's because
2: he's doing all this stuff in spite of the fact that he clearly knows it's wrong. Whereas Amber comes across as an amoral sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas he's different. Like he gets it, but equally some of the stuff he does, like c- completely inventing like a father who was terminally ill and was saved by pain medication.
0: You know, just on the it just does not think twice about it. Yeah, so yeah, he he's quite chilling. But there is a thread also that runs through the show, at least in the early episodes. We sh- we we've seen the first three episodes so far. We're not going to go into into detail about what happens in those three episodes, but we'll talk about the general broad brushstrokes. Uh, and there's a thread that runs through that where some of the salespeople who are working for for Purdue and some of the other people who've been kind of who are part of the Purdue publicity machine. Feel you know, genuinely believe what they're saying. They genuinely believe what they're peddling. Um, Michael Stuhlbarg's character, Richard Sackler, genuinely believed he had made this drug that was going to cure pain, and there is a market out there for such a thing shoot one day sure. a drug like got every come along
2: but i think like
0: i don't think you can defend
2: his practices even if I'm he not, believes i'm not i'm not saying you are but i'm just saying like even if he believed that he'd invented this drug they went through some very very sh- they jumped through some shady hoops <laughs> in order to get it out Porters in the way cut. they did yeah indeed like and they had special dispensation from the fda, FDA mm. to give it a special label
0: and these guys, yeah, and they they're a very, very rich family. And they're weirdly at odds with themselves because the the bottom line is the bottom line uh, for them. But there are scenes, for example, where, you know, you see them in their ivory towers and see how detached they are. And then the contrast, the sharp contrast mm-hmm. with, say, Caitlin Deaver's character, Betsy, who is living at home with her folks and working down a, a coal mine and going through hell every single day and living with horrendous pain uh, internally and externally as well. Because as Beth said earlier on, she's also not struggling with her sexuality. She has come to terms with, you know, the fact that she is gay, but her parents who are very deeply religious. Yeah. Haven't So there's all these little complications thrown in as well. But the the contrast between the haves and the have-nots is Mm. is very stark. The the one was
2: interesting, though, because I've seen very early on in that where you see where they interrogate whether or not OxyContin is actually... Because it's it's cost them so much money to develop, whether Mm. it's something that actually they should be doing, whether it was a waste of money. And Richard stands up and he defends it. But the family dynamics are... Fascinating, yeah. and again, I had like the Roy's in my head looking at that. I was Me like, "This too, is like yeah. Succession too." I could almost watch a show just dedicated to this family and their, you know, interconnections, how they interact with each other. Genuinely madness.
3: Well,
0: an anthology show where you know you have one season following Michael Keaton's character, one season following Rosario Dawson. Yeah. one season following the Sacklers might become a little bit tough well, with the Sacklers I I think. Saying, well no I think <laughs> you'd
2: have to go into the full you'd have to lean into the absurdity of it wouldn't you Like it would have to be like Succession where you're like yep these people are all awful but we're going to roll with it anyway <laughs>
0: um, if there is a lead in this at all and I, I think I, again one of the shows virtues is that there isn't no, necessarily no, a lead really. it would be Michael Keaton I think as Dr. Fenix and he who is a very essentially decent man who maybe slowly begins to become morally and ethically compromised by his exposure to Will Poulter's rep and to OxyContin, which he begins to give to some of his patients. Mm. Uh, And it works for a lot of them. It works for a lot of them. It doesn't work um, for Betsy. Which is interesting.
2: Well, crucially, interesting, it does work for Betsy. So yes. it worked for what she True. needed
0: for her injury, and the pain went away. The
2: problem, of course, is when she tries to stop taking oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Therein lies the problem. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. He's a really interesting character because he is a good guy, and he's at the almost like the fulcrum of all this. Like he's he's dealing with the patients who need it. He's dealing with the reps who are pushing it, and he's in there trying to do his best. And what he's offered as a as a sort of a primary care physician is this perfect thing—a thing that won't cause addiction, which will be good for not just severe but also for moderate pain. And it feels like this is an absolute win for him. And you always get the impression, certainly when he speaks to them, like he's not being evil at all. Like he doesn't realize yeah. what Diva's character is going through. And all he knows is for the characters or for the people he's prescribed this to, it has helped with their pain. Like yeah. it has done what he wanted it to do. I think it's only when he starts to experience it firsthand that maybe things become slightly
3: clearer. Yes. I mean, he's a puppet, isn't he? He's a puppet who's being played by another puppet, He's yeah. being played by another puppet. Um, but it's pretty painful to watch, to be honest, to see, especially seeing Keaton assuming this very wholesome corn-fed. Does he have a dog? I feel like he has a dog. If <laughs> I feel he doesn't, like the dog
2: is implied. Even if he doesn't have even a dog, if he it's have definitely a dog, he, implied. He should have a dog.
3: Mm. You know, he wears the windbreaker and, and he takes... Will Porter's character Billy T for for fried chicken as his mm-hmm. that's his that's his food that's where he wants to go and to go and eat and um, and he's through and through a decent person who just wants to do well by the town that he serves he served that town for his entire career he's doing the best that he can and he's completely manipulated as you say completely ethically compromised without him really realizing. And I think because we all have, I mean, you hear it in the interview, everyone has a childhood attachment with Michael Keaton, you know, whether it's Batman, I think Will Poulter said he loved him in Birdman. Everyone's got a favourite mm. Keaton role.
0: Oh, that makes me feel really old. <laughs> that, the, that the film that Will Poulter has identified Michael Keaton as being from is Birdman. <laughs> oh, no. Be name, it's
3: Beetlejuice. It's this, it's this figure of a... It's what?
4: It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, what? was the name
3: of that film? Beetleju- Beetlejuice. Um, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice? <laughs> um, um, that's the end of that. <laughs> but we we are all, you know, helpless to resist Michael Keaton and to see him you know, being morally beaten about the head for just trying to do his job as best he can and being a through-and-through through decent person. It's, it's great casting and really effective, but it is torture to watch, I think, but, but gets the message across incredibly, incredibly effectively.
0: I believe he also has a personal connection. I, I saw an interview with him the other week where he alluded to a family member having struggled with addiction. So that was one of his reasons for, for doing the show. But it's been fascinating watching Michael Keaton over the years because, yeah, because I, I, I am substantially older than Will Poulter. It's it becoming <laughs> rapidly clear. Yeah, my way into him was, um, yes, Batman, yes, your fella, <laughs> whose name we shouldn't say more than uh, three times, otherwise he appears. Pacific Heights. I don't let's get Heights, him on the pod. <laughs> Mr. Mom. Night Shift. You ever seen Night Shift? No. Oh, such a good film. <laughs> Henry Winkler is a is a um, is a uh, a guy who. Ends up opening essentially a an escort service. and uh, Michael Keaton's the the wacky best friend in that, but you can't take your eyes off whenever he's on screen. Multiplicity, and multiplicity, oh multiple Michael Keatons. Can you imagine that! I've <laughs> forgotten
3: all about multiplicity. He could play every single
0: role in Dopesick <laughs> and not break a sweat. But he had that, he had that period, obviously going uh, in and around Batman and Batman Returns, and then after that he made a number of, of movies like Pacific Heights and like Multiplicity and things like that and then he just kind of disappeared off the radar for a while deliberately so uh, from all from all accounts and came back strong with with Birdman and Spider-Man and various films with man in the title and <laughs> but there's something about him which is really interesting like he's such a versatile actor and he has you know there's a there's a manic quality and a a dangerous quality to a mm-hmm. lot of his best performances you don't see that here. All you see is a really, really decent human being. I so don't far. Know, so far. He I, may
2: go completely berserk I, by the I, end.
0: I don't see it. I don't see it with him. I think he may be compromised. I think he may be in over his head. Yeah. But I don't see him twirling an,
2: an imaginary mustache. Well, it's important to, to point out, like, we know an element of what his arc will be because there are two, well, there are disparate timelines in this, isn't it? Yes, we yeah, see so non What happens after everyone knows, and then what happens. As they did before they know what this is. So we yeah. see him essentially, I think it pretty much opens with him, doesn't it? As, yeah. as a witness in yeah. a trial uh, about Oxycontin.
0: So. With Peter Sarsgar. Indeed. Or, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you also get a sense in that that he's not, He's a man who, um, in those opening minutes, you, you, you get a sense that he's a man who's contrite. You get a sense that he's a man who's ravaged by guilt.
3: He looks stunned. He yeah. looks completely mm. stunned. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that opening just got me and you're right the way that he has downplayed his kind of maniacal tendencies i loved him in spotlight i thought that was that was such an interesting turn for him yeah. um he's he's wounded in this series so he's he's widowed as well which horribly does play into the the way that he is manipulated it's it's uncomfortable but has to be i think there is there's there is an importance to sitting through this and, and making sure that you are seeing the, the very, very ruinous effects of this, of this crisis.
0: All right, well let's bring this bad boy home then. This this lovely collaboration. It's so good to see you pilot guys. Because <laughs> obviously I don't listen to your podcast. So seeing <laughs> so seeing you in the flesh is, is really nice. See it reminds me. See what it you're missing me, that just, one. This is what it could be. And then I think to myself, this is what it could be. And then I decide not to listen. But no, only kidding, the pilot TV podcast is moderately entertaining. And I can I can well highly is a very strong word, but I can recommend it.
3: Yeah, back if at all you. of the
0: podcasts have mysteriously been no I'm only kidding uh, check out the Pilot TV podcast um, Every Monday Every Monday Every Monday Wherever
2: you get your podcasts <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Incorrigible Don't encourage me Good Banter That's what you get in the Empire podcast uh, Anyway so yeah, there's five episodes left. I'm intrigued to see where this goes. I don't know where it goes, apart from obviously, it's in the news that it doesn't end well. No, I was going to say for, no way good. Like, it's going to no. yeah. go badly for it's everyone. It's going to go uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, dramatic ground to mine. Mm.
3: It's the it's the human element of this to me. Like the casting is so spot on, the characters so well drawn, and I think not Lilia really a storytelling doesn't always work for me but here it really does and so I've really as you say it, it probably won't end up well but I'm so invested in the stories um, and there's little kind of teasers as to what is coming plus I'm just rooting for Billy I'm rooting for Bill Porter I do hope he comes through and sees the light to grow a conscience yeah I'm rooting for him to pivot what are the odds? Slim, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's as he says he he does this to kind of he wants social change. It's a big part of his his kind of push as an actor. Yeah, so. well, he also
0: wants a Ferrari.
3: <laughs> does he? He's, he's told you that, is he? I'm just guessing. He's
0: he's a guy. He's a guy. We can get that from his
3: Marvel paycheck. This is for this is for the greater good.
0: Yes, indeed. He's going to be Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Yes. Incidentally, in case you didn't didn't know, this thing's just filled with superheroes. Yes. And bad and baddies and baddies. Peter Sarsgaard was a baddie in Green Lantern. Yeah. Michael Keaton is he's um he's Batman. He's Batman, of course. And the and yeah in Spider Man. And Birdman, and Birdman—not a superhero, but you know it, yep. it works. Rosario Dawson was Claire in Daredevil and all the those Netflix Defender shows. Mm-hmm. It's all there. It it's is. all
3: there. Yeah. They could have saved us, man. They could have done good
0: what they team up at the end and yeah. take down Big like Pharma a,
3: like, a, like an Avengers type mm. thing against American Pharmaceuticals yeah I'd absolutely.
0: see it yeah I'd, I'd be there for that I would be there for that yeah very intriguing indeed to see where this is going to go in the next five episodes or so but on that note that is it for this very very special collaboration between the Empire podcast and the pilot what's it called again James
3: <laughs> the pilot TV <laughs> podcast yes <Yeah. laughs> honestly
0: yeah <laughs> Oh, we have some giggles here, don't we? Don't we just? Uh, don't, we? don't we? Don't we? Don't we? Don't we just? Uh, so people can expect the Pilot TV podcast. Um, sounds like a threat, but they can expect it every Monday. <laughs> they can, every, every Monday. Monday. And every Friday is when you can listen to the regular Empire podcast as well. That's where there's me and Jimbo on there. Yeah. More importantly, you can hear me on both. You cannot escape <laughs> Yes. It, even if you try. <laughs> yes. Um. Not a lot of me on the Pilot podcast, is there, Jimbo, really? No, no. 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 Why, why I feel that? when you start listening to it, then we can have you well, on a yeah. contributor. <laughs> I, I never listen to podcasts. podcast I'm on. I don't listen to the, the Empire podcast. <laughs> well, you edit it, so you kinda to have to. Oh, actually, I, I edit it without listening to it, which probably shows... a lot. Yeah. <laughs> i a
3: <laughs>
0: I just kind of guess. Oh, it all becomes uh, go, clear. That's an um. That's dead air. That's a bad opinion. I can just tell by the, the waveforms <laughs> now. I, yeah, I'm like Neo in the Matrix. I see everything It's just waveforms, so I'm going to cut that. I'll probably cut this as well. But uh, anyway... So Dopesick is available on Star from November 12th. So check that out. Uh, But that is it. That is it for this very special collaboration between the Empire podcast and the Pilot TV podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to my two pilot colleagues of such lethal cunning, Beth Webb. Thank you so
3: much. Thank you, Beth. See?
0: See, James? Learn from Beth when I do your (laughs) outro. And, of course, James Dyer. Goodbye, Christopher. Goodbye, James. That was it? Yeah. Your hello was underwhelming. Your goodbye was disappointing. That be consistent. <laughs> All right. Excellent. And it is goodbye from me. Thank you so much for listening. Pilot and Empire out.